Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from TechTables.com, and you're listening to the Public Sector Show by TechTables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders. Through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events, we offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. And to continue this darn good conversation, head over to the Q&A section on Spotify. Today we have Glenn Hasted, IT Director for the County of Onslow. And before we kick off today's episode, I want to give a big thank you to one of our brand partners who keeps this podcast free to the listener. Nagara is a leading provider of digital government services, partnering with state, local, and federal clients on some of their most strategic technology projects. Nagara offers expertise in digital services, legacy modernization, case management, data and AI, service desk, cybersecurity, and more. Make sure to check out nagaro.com. That's N-A-G-A-R-R-O.com. Glenn, welcome to the Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited that we were able to connect, and thank you for reaching out. Glenn, so before we kick off our podcast today... Why don't you give us a bit of background on yourself and the county, and then we'll jump to the exciting book that we're going to cover today and then unpack a little bit of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in uh, public service for since 1998, so quite a bit. I was in uh, private industry before that, but now I'm out here at the county of Onslow. been here about seven years. The last six years, we've been ranked top 10 in the nation which is exciting for innovation and cybersecurity. And in that time, I've also been doing some classes and workshops on, on culture, on how to have the best culture. I do some speeches, I'm writing a book. This is something that I'm very passionate about. Yeah, let's unpack this a little bit. You're writing a book, you're taking some courses on, on culture. Uh, where are you taking are these online courses? Is this kind of local in the area? Give us a little more flavor on that. Yeah, they're actually at UNC Chapel Hill School of Government. I, I teach with a guy named Rick Rochetti. We do a class on how to build a, an exceptional culture. And I've done these talks and keynotes on the same topic. And it's just, it's something I think is probably the most important aspect of leadership is creating that great culture because you can be successful today or you can be successful in a project. But to exemplify that long-term success over 5, 10, 15 years, to me, that requires having a great culture. And, and it feeds, feeds the beast, as it were. Yeah, that's uh, 100% right. If you, your team will only go as high as, as the culture that, you, that the leaders are setting. So the course is Cultivating Engaging Work Culture. I just brought this up because I want to know, I'm like, can I take this course? Can I learn? Can I go learn from Glenn? It is in person. Unfortunately, I live in Southern California. <laughs> Doesn't look like I can get out there. But this looks fantastic. And I just want to read a little bit of the course description because I think this is super important. Shaping organizational culture and aligning it to your organizational strategy is a huge leadership challenge and an important leadership skill. Understanding what culture is and what needs to be changed are key diagnostic abilities. The workshop will help you get clear about what needs changing and offering key tools to begin to shape the culture of your organization. I think that brief summary is absolutely fantastic. So you mentioned that you're writing a book. 
one of the things that also connected with me is that you're a lacrosse coach or what we're a lacrosse coach. I might've, I just remember jotting that down. Are you still a lacrosse coach? What were you coaching? Not anymore. Yeah, that was, not anymore. Yeah. That was when I was inland. I really enjoyed it. I played in high school, loved the sport and got an opportunity to coach down here. And I think, and you know this from being the basketball coach that you are, you're setting the tone as the coach. It's very similar to what you do in the workplace and setting the tone and, and creating the culture for your team. It's really the same thing. You're there and you're cheering people on. You're making sure that they feel appreciated and valued for what they're bringing to the team and that you have your mission, your goals in mind, where you're going to go, how you're going to get there, the plays you're going to run. And, and the way that your team is going to interact, not only with themselves, but with the other team, which is essentially your values. So having all of that, it's, there's some really great parallels, I think, between coaching and leadership. And I know you've explored that in several of, of your other podcasts, but I just wanted to reiterate that because it really is so true that you're there as the, you're the cheerleader, you're the mentor, you're the the shoulder to cry on when things don't go well and you're there for all of that yeah that's you nailed it i love the parallels between coaching sports and building organizations outside of that and this actually leads us to there's a book called and i'm gonna turn over so if people are watching this on camera you're like joe you're not looking at the camera i know i'm looking at my ipad right now so i want to read from the culture code the secrets of highly successful groups by Daniel Coyle. Mm -hmm. This actually really caught my eye. I think I might even turn this into my own my own spin on this during a, a talk I give at, at a conference at some point. Because I, I, what I like about it is it actually gave me a framework because I've been thinking a lot about this because I just meet with so many different organizations. And I see the kind of unique parallels between having a preschooler right now and how he builds stuff and interacts in the room. A eighth grader coaching high school boys and then interacting with different adults in the public sector and private sector side. So I've got this kind of this wide, and most people have a wide range of tastes of how different humans work together, solve problems, which is super fascinating for me. So I'm going to read this. I don't normally read really a whole lot on the podcast is I feel like it's like Jocko right now that like I'm going to read, but I'm going to read the excerpt from culture code because it was just so good. Glenn, will you bear with me while I read? I'm just going to read the Absolutely. introduction. I'm a big fan of the book. Okay. So you can bear with me. All right. So the introduction, I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read the first block of it. So here it is. When two plus two equals 10, let's start with a question, which might be the oldest question of all. Why do certain groups add up to be greater than the sum of their parts, while others add up to be less? A few years ago, the designer and engineer, Peter Skillman, held a competition to find out. Over several months, he assembled a series of four-person groups at Stanford, the University of California, the University of Tokyo, and a few other places. He challenged each group to build the tallest possible structure using the following items. The contest had one rule. The marshmallow had to end up on top. The fascinating part of the experiment, however, had less to do with the task and more with the participants. You can see if you're a coach why you love this. Some of the teams consisted of business school students, 
The others consisted of kindergartners. The business students got right to work. They began talking and thinking strategically. They examined the materials. They tossed ideas back and forth, asked thoughtful questions, savvy questions. They generated several options. They honed in on the most promising ideas. It was professional, rational, intelligent. The process resulted in a decision to pursue one particular strategy. They divided up all the tasks and started building. The kindergartners took a different approach. They did not strategize. They did not analyze or share experiences. They did not ask questions, propose options, or hone ideas. In fact, they barely talked at all. They stood very close to one another. Their interactions were not smooth or organized. Sounds like a startup right now. I like these kindergartners. They abruptly grabbed materials from one another and started building. Following no plan or strategy, when they spoke in short bursts, here, no, here. Sounds like my son's room two preschool. <laughs> here, over here. Their entire technique might be described as trying a bunch of stuff together. If you had to bet which of these teams would win, it'd be a difficult choice. You would bet on the business school students because they possess the intelligence, skills, and experience to do a superior job. This is the way we normally think about group performance. We presume skilled individuals will combine to produce skilled performance in the same way we presume two plus two will combine to produce four. Your bet would be wrong. In dozens of trials, kindergartners built structures that averaged 26 inches tall, while business school students built structures that averaged less than 10 inches. The result is hard to absorb because it feels like an illusion. We see smart, experienced business school students, and we find it difficult to imagine that they would combine to produce a poor performance. We see unsophisticated, in inexperienced kindergartners, and we find it difficult to imagine that they would combine to produce a successful performance. But this illusion, like every illusion, happens because our instincts have led us to focus on the wrong details. We focus on what we can see, individual skills, but individual skills are not what matters. What matters is the interaction. And I'm going to add my own plug. What matters is the team. The business school students appear to be collaborating, but in fact, they are engaging in a process psychologists call status management. I also really like the term status signaling. They are figuring out where they fit into the larger picture, who is in charge, is it okay to criticize someone's idea, what are the rules here. Their interactions appear smooth, but their underlying behavior is riddled with inefficiency, hesitation, and subtle competition. Instead of focusing on the task, they are navigating their uncertainty about one another. They spend so much time managing status that they fail to grasp the essence of the problem. The marshmallow is relatively heavy. Spaghetti is hard to secure. As a result, their first efforts often collapse and they run out of time. The actions of the kindergartners appear disorganized on the surface, but when you view them as a single entity, their behavior is efficient and effective. They are not competing for status. They stand shoulder to shoulder and work energetically together. They move quickly, spotting problems and offering help. They experiment, take risks, and notice outcomes, which guide them toward effective solutions. The kindergartners succeed not because they are smarter, but because they work together in a smarter way. They are tapping 
into a simple and powerful method in which a group of ordinary people can create performance far beyond the sum of their parts. This is the book of how that method works. So uh, I'm going to end there. That's the teaser of why I absolutely love this book. Mm -hmm. Glenn, let's unpack this. Have you done the marshmallow experiment yourself? What about this book has stood out to you? What do you love? Let's hear from you. Yeah. What I love about that, specifically that scenario, is whereas when you get a group of adults together, you have to build an environment of emotional safety where people feel like they can contribute very actively with non, in a non-judgmental format where they can ask questions or say questions without without fear or, or anything like that. You have to build that. That takes a lot of time. Um, because you essentially have to unlearn everything that they've learned since they were in kindergarten. When they're in kindergarten, that's how they operate. That's how they, because that's what you're teaching your kids, right? Be nice to everybody. Don't judge everybody. And everybody gets along and they're able to work like that. You have to undo all of the negative behavior that they've learned as an adult, competing for jobs, competing for girlfriends, competing for this, competing for that comparing one another and social media and everything else. And you have to undo all of that to be able to get the team where they can really operate and care about each other and treat each other with respect and move forward as a team where the team is uh, success is, is more important than the individual success. And that's what happens with the kindergartners. You're, you're asking them as a group and they take that at heart that this group needs to be successful. Whereas the business students, like you said, are competing for their role in the group. In addition to the group's success, but more importantly to them, at least their role in the group and their status in the group. And it's just, it's a lot of wasted movement, a lot of wasted motion. But it's, uh, to me, it boils down to that emotional safety. Yeah, I love that lot. Lots of wasted motion, effort, energy, mm-hmm on all of the wrong stuff you should be focusing on having it's funny i work with a lot of adults in different companies these might be folks where like i would say oh i'm working with glenn right now there's a process there's getting people booked for the podcast having the podcast editing it there's when i throw live podcast events communicating with people having it out there and it's a funny thing where, or with vendor partners and, and I can see, I can almost look into organizations and see their process and how they make decisions. And I can see that in some instances, it's more about status. Is this person going to this event? Is this person going to this event? Which is really funny for me. People are like, oh, Joe, what? Is that true? Oh, it's hundred percent true. Trust me. Having thrown a number of events, And it's unfortunate, and I wish we could, it's not with everybody, but there are several folks where it does happen. Now, I think that's a great opportunity to, I think, grow and learn and evolve, but status is a real thing uh, that's in this world. I think another one working with folks is how organizations make decisions. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the decision-making process is really painful and really long. And it's really a lot of wasted effort and energy. And I think Harvard had a great study on this. They came out and said, 
it, it may have been there was some threshold that you hit over that number, the number of people, and it just becomes a total waste of time. You can't make a, an effective decision. And so there has right. to be some hierarchy where someone can make a decision because if no one makes a decision, there's no motion. You can't go anywhere. And I think in this, in, in either in this intro or it was in, in the book, it talks about how the kids just get to work and they're just working and the adults mm -hmm. just run out of time. <laughs> the college kids just run out of time That's because right. they're trying. Yeah. So I was. But think about it while they're building it, while they're putting that together, they're already finding out where their ideas are wrong on the fly and resolving them on the fly. Whereas by putting that, by planning it out and the business leaders are putting that together, they haven't done any testing. It's all theoretical up to that point. And yeah, they're doomed. But so one, one of the other things I think you just touched on it is that decision-making process. What's important too is, is what in some organizations um, is that real hierarchical tree and the decisions are made here by one person or the ideas come from this one person and, and trickle down to everybody else. And I just find that so wrong. If I'm the one that has all the ideas, then why is the rest of the team here? Why do we have all these people? And why is diversity and inclusion such a big deal? Why is anybody making a big deal out of that? Like I always tell my team, like when we're hiring and everything, I don't want to hire another Glenn. I've already got one. I don't need someone sitting next to me going, yeah, yeah, that's what I need. Well, I want somebody sitting next to me that's going to say, no, Glenn, this is where this is going to go wrong. This is where you're not thinking of this or you're not thinking of that. So I want people that think differently than everyone else on the team so they can help formulate a much better solution. And that's, to me, that's what that same kind of aspect that you're talking about with the kindergartners, they're all plugging away at a different angle. Yep. And then when they're figuring it out, instead of trying to get consensus and agreement and move forward, they're just doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, as the coach, there's the, and when I say hierarchy, not necessarily in a bad way, but there is this, you have this, you hold both in your palm and your hand. Like I show up with the practice plan for practice. I show sure. up with the game plan. We whiteboard it out. We got a game plan. We also allow the kids to jump in all the time. Hey, what are you seeing on the court? We want to know, what are you seeing? What are we missing right now? What are you seeing? Hey, you know what? Actually someone's doing a scissor cut over here and we can't, and this is, and so we start getting feedback from the players to adjust the game plan. So hierarchy doesn't mean control and it doesn't mean you're this dictator, but at some point, I think that the, the tension is that you you have to make a call at some point. Someone has to make oh, a call absolutely. or, or absolutely. you don't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But you also have to be agile enough and listen because if you're mid practice and you realize, Hey, everybody's driving to the hoop with the right hand. I'm not seeing any lefty dribbling. Maybe we need to do a little bit more alternate hand. Yep. You, you got to be agile enough to see where things are going to go, but I'm certainly not saying that leaders should let go of the reins by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think that we have to create an environment where people feel safe to disagree. Yep. Where people feel safe to, to give ideas without being judged, where people feel safe to bring their authentic selves to work. Because if you don't, 
if you're not able to create that environment, then it doesn't matter how diverse your workforce is. You're not going to get any benefit from it. Yeah. You know, no, you're that, not going to see I love it. that. No, I, I love that. Yeah. We, you, like you, you nailed it when you said you don't want another Glenn. No one wants another Joe. As my wife would say, you talk too much. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. No, you want to have different, you want to have different perspectives. You want to have mm-hmm. different insights and you just get that when you're willing to listen to the group. And I think, I don't know if it's like high school might be like the last piece, but something where just whether you're an adult or it's just the world just beats you down, but you lose that marshmallow effect. I don't know what we'll call that. The marshmallow effect of this. I see in high schoolers where like they're willing, like, it's awesome when they take ownership of the game plan and they know the plays and they're drawing stuff and they're communicating to each other. And I don't know what it is as adults. It's just like the world beats you down and you just lose that and you start focusing on the wrong things. But I think when you can bring the team together and they, everyone feels valued and you're in a great environment, I think that's where the, just the magic happens. Like that's the magic, oh, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you've got to create the clear expectations, right? What's your mission? What What is the team there for? What's the vision? Where are we going? What are we trying to actually accomplish here? And, and be able to communicate that over and over where like my team can recite our vision, our mission, right? Not word for word, but the gist. They Everybody in the, knows what our mission is and what we're trying to do, or at least their version of it. And it's all you know, different verbiage, but it's the same idea. And, and so they understand the mission. They feel supported. They're safe to explore towards that mission. So when they're out in the field, I'm not with them. And they can see things where they can make a positive difference in somebody's life, or they can make a positive difference towards our mission. They're going to go do it. They might call back let me know what they're doing. But you know what? And when they see something where they can make a difference, they're going to go make that difference, that positive difference. But they're going to do it as if I was standing behind them because they have that mission in their head. They know what my expectations are and how they're going to behave and how the, like we said before, the values are how you're going to behave. But they have that mission. They know what they're going to do. And that not that empowerment? Isn't that what everybody wants and everybody's clamoring for? But I, I, to me, I don't feel like empowerment is something you can do. I can't just go to them and say, be empowered. But it just doesn't work like that. I've got to create the environment where they feel safe to do those things. And the structure in which they, they can do those things in that's going to be productive to what we want to do. Yeah. No, that, that, that's so great. It, this ties in. I, was, I remember interviewing Craig Hopkins, who's the CIO for the city of San Antonio. And he I heard that one. Oh yeah. It Craig is awesome. He got great. Yeah. He has a great heart. Um, but he talks about this concept of when he was in the Navy and they had a room mom. And so depending on where you are in your life cycle, right? Sometimes you just need more structure. If you would have taken the 18 year old version of me, uh, and then if I was the Navy, yeah, I need a room mom. I need instruction. I had no idea where I was going. And you need that for a different season. When you get older, it's just, it's different, especially if you get more experience and you're more professional and that. But I love the concept that he brought up in the Navy as far as the same thing of they had this kind of structure and it was a great spot for 
Craig to learn discipline and learn skills that he needed to grow and develop in. I don't know the episode number, but I'm just gonna we'll, we gotta put, we're gonna put that in the show notes. So shout out to Craig. He was he came on real early, maybe 2020 on the podcast, but it was a great episode. And always love tying in uh, public sector service and then taking that. And then actually, I was mentioning before with Patsy, who is the CISO for the city of San Antonio. She also served in the Navy. Really smart. And we're going to record that episode later this month. It's January 31st, next month, which is going to be another really great one. But I really appreciate you, Glenn, for catching that episode with Craig. I wanted to talk about, and I, I briefly glanced over it, so I'm sorry, you got to forgive me, but uh, I know you're writing a book and I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. I think you had mentioned you have a couple chapters done. Could you maybe yeah. just give us the high, high overview and then maybe dive in a little bit deeper and then I'm going to put you on the spot for when you think this project is going to ship. Oh, great. Yeah. You know, what I'm trying to put together is at least what I've seen in, in the leadership classes I've taken and a lot of the books that I've read is they're really good at showing the outcome and they're really good at giving you the theory that how teams are composed or especially if you read Harvard Business Review and things like that, they're really good at showing how those structures work. But what I don't see a lot of is real boots on the ground. This is what you as a leader have to do to to build this. This is what you as a leader have to do, be mindful of and things like that. Because when I first started my research, I remember asking a bunch of C-level executives, I said, how do, how do you change the culture? And um, a surprising number of them had no answer whatsoever. And a few more uh, had the answer of, we have to fire all the people and hire new people, which horrified me. That absolutely horrified me. And it didn't match with my own uh, life experience. I knew like I operated differently under different leaders, even though I was the same person. And to me, that just brought it home that the culture is driven by the leader. It's driven by the leader of that team. As, as you said before, with coaching, it's driven by the coach. It's driven by the leader of the team. And that made me really think about what is that person doing? Like physically, what are they doing? You know, not what theories are they ascribing to or things like that. What are they actually doing? Where are the steps lying that they're doing that? And, and it really came, and that's where I'm driving towards is those practical applications of how you build trust, how you actually support people. How do you build an environment of emotional safety? What, what do you have to have? What are the tools that you have to have that exceptional team environment where everybody's happy? where everybody wants to be there, at least until they win the lottery, and wants to see the team succeed and drives towards those goals. That's what's so important. Okay, that's great. Now, when can we see this masterpiece? I'm hoping, I'm hoping, so I'm, I still have a full-time job while I'm doing this. So I am, obviously that comes first, but I am trying to write at least a little bit every week. So I'm hoping within a year or so, I'll have this out and get it published or at least get it to the editor in a year and see how long it takes for them to clean up my mess. I've got a, I've got a pitch for Glenn. Glenn might not agree with me, but that's okay. I'm still going to pitch it to him. You should turn <laughs> each chapter into a blog post and then, and then folks can comment like me or read it and check it out. I always love when authors do that when they turn into a blog post first. That's my secret pitch that 
I don't have to wait a year. Glenn can just feed me a chapter a month or okay. via blog post or a newsletter or even just breaking it up in sections. It would be a ton of fun. You get your newsletter going. I would subscribe. I always love really great content on culture, leadership, servant leadership. And actually really funny on the top. It's just a random thought. See, Glenn, welcome to the podcast. I have random thoughts and we just bring them up all the time. Talking about, I was thinking about servant leadership today because I knew we had our podcast. And when I went to drop off my son before preschool started, gets out of the car and he goes, no, daddy, I, I want to be the line leader. So being the line leader is the big thing right now. If you're four, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's being the line leader. And so you get to be at, Absolutely. you get to be in, you get to be first, you get to be in front. And so I, we let him be the line leader for us. He gets, he got to be the line leader in class, but we get, let him lead us to the school campus after from the parking lot. And what I was thinking about, I told my wife, I was like, I'm going to start reading Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek to, to Jack. Right. <laughs> to who? Now, he's four for the audience listening in. <laughs> so if you have a four-year-old and you're thinking, yeah, I'm going to teach him servant leadership perspective. If the kid's four, just let the kid lead, have a moment. Um, different time for teaching. But yeah, that's actually what came to mind is is actually being last and letting someone else serve. And actually this, another thought was great. Last night we had senior night. See Glenn, when podcasts like this come up, my mind just goes everywhere. So last night we had senior night for the guys at home, last home game. We've got one more game on the road tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so this is the last chance to play in front of the home crowd for the seniors, the seniors start. And one of the things that the head varsity coach said was that, and I don't know who it is. I didn't follow up and ask him, but one of the younger guys on the team, I think it's one of the sophomores, or fr- and we only have one freshman, said, I would give up any playing time or minutes that I would normally have so that the seniors, there's a few that don't normally play, but they're on the team, mm-hmm. would get playing time that night on senior night. And I was like, so touched. I, I thought I was going to start crying. Yeah. And now that I'm talking to you about this, I'm going to go ask at practice. I'm going to go pull the varsity coach aside. I'm like, hey, you got to tell me so I can go give that kid a hug and just not, I won't say anything to him, but I'll just give him a hug or a fist bump. And I love that. I love that. Or where there's another great book. Now I'm just rambling. See, Glenn, this is in the podcast. I just have books that come to my mind like crazy. You probably read The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. Yeah. Opening line It's not about you, it's the That's greatest line. Right. It's the greatest line. It's not about you. I love that. Yeah. I now mean, that I took up all the time, Glenn, why, please <laughs> fill, fill, fill us in so I stop talking. Yeah, no, think about it, right? Um, you actually are teaching your child servant leadership because you're teaching them how to care about the other people around them, right? Share his toys, give. When you see someone, like when you go into the Walmart or whatever around Christmas, when they have the Salvation Army buckets, give to help people less fortunate. That, what is it, right? To me, servant leadership is defined by me caring about my team. I, I put them first. I care about them. I, we, I take the blame and pass the praise. And so I'm always going to be the shield. When it, Whenever anything goes bad, it's my fault. And when something goes good, I'm going to point into the team and say, yeah, aren't they awesome? And to me, caring about them, 
and caring about their career, talking to them about where they want their career to go and try to find training for them and to give them projects that advance their career and support them and do those things for them. When I do that for them, they turn around and then they want to achieve my vision and my mission. So to me, I don't know how you can succeed without servant leadership. You can succeed, I guess, in a short term. You can berate people and yell at them and get them moving in the right direction in the short term. But you're only going to succeed as far as you define that success. Me, I could just say, hey, we're moving in this direction, and I don't have to define the success because they're going to go. And they're just going to keep going. And we're always going to overproduce. We're always going to oversucceed. I have one of the smallest teams for the number of people that we support. And yet they're ranked uh, top 10 in the nation. But they do that because they're, they're, they, they feel like they can. And they know that if they fail, I'm always going to step in front of the bus. I just ask them to honk the horn first. Give you a little heads up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. give me a heads up. No, but, I, I yeah. love that. Small, nimble, small, nimble teams. Again, I, I think a lot of times, just going back to status, a lot of people equate the number of people you have on your team with success, but it's so backwards. And so, I think my success uh, is go talk to the people that we serve, right? That's my yep. success. Go talk to the people that we serve and see what their reaction is for the service that they're getting. Talk to the people on my team and see what their reaction is to being in this role. The lack of turnover. The, I've got retirees that come back just to you know bring pizza or to help train people on their time on their own time to help train people in roles that they used to have just to just to be back here. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that, and that's and that requires real work to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It requires, it's a lot of. It real requires work. real work. Yeah. 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 It's really it's. It, it sounds like unicorns and lollipops, right? But really what you have to do is you have to make sure that every word coming out of your mouth, every bit of body language, your facial expression, your tone, your volume, everything matches to the words that you're using and the mission that you expressed and the commitment that you've given them that you're going to support them and care about them. You have to match all that. And it's really difficult, I think, especially in a virtual environment, because when I'm on this podcast with you, I'm in a room alone, right? And and I know I'm in a room alone, so maybe I'm not watching my facial expression as, as much as I would if I was talking with a group of people. I wouldn't be as as, as mindful of my body language. Uh, so it is, it's harder uh, in some areas, but you've got to watch all that. You've got to be on all the time. Yeah. Thinking about putting in the real work and caring, we've, we launched like a soft launch i don't promote it too heavily but we've got something called tech tables plus um, which mm-hmm. is what i'm referring to as like the next generation of public sector education and training and we launched uh, the first version of it and we got some customers we're at like 25 right now and so one of the things that changes i was wondering was like how can i get this to grow faster like i, I really want this to grow i think there's something here so I started meeting with everyone, one-on-one. I just want to know, and my wife and I have been doing this together, 
and it has been fascinating. And then, and what we'll do is we've had a screen up and changes that people are requesting. Hey, it'd be cool if we did this. We're just doing it in real time. And we're, so we're trying to iterate. We're trying to make this as agile as possible. And it's been a ton of fun. And one of the biggest lessons I learned was that I should have done this earlier. I should have started much sooner. And, and so you, there's, uh, I forget the name. There's a chart of early adopter period. And then you've got people who mainstream. And then the last people on the arc are like my, was like my grandfather when he's alive. Like he got an iPad at 87. <laughs> so I'm in this early adopter phase. And, but it's been fascinating because people started telling me, Joe, I want more conversations like this. I want more like this. We want more content like this. I was like, I hear you. All right. And so yeah. you start listening, you're receiving feedback, you're iterating quickly, you're making adjustments. And I just see how much value there is if, and the cool thing about public sector is that you have to serve. And what I mean by that is you can't just shut down like the park is there or the library or anything. Right. So you've got so many different services. And I think one of the things I see is that people are so strapped for time. I'm strapped for time too, but how critical it is to get out and meet the people in, in, in whatever area they're in. So if that's the library, it's meeting mm -hmm. with people who are checking out books. If it's the park, it's going to the park and, and seeing how people use the park. And, and then you can start to formulate those services. I, I'm big. I have a business. And so I have to submit. I use a lot of business services. So in Santa Barbara, for example, I consume a lot of their services. During COVID, someone made a decision and it wasn't that, that smart of a decision. And in my sense of they would not take any online payments and they wouldn't take payments in person. Um, so then you shut down your revenue stream. And I was like, guys, this is not. <laughs> so I'm writing a letter. I host a technology podcast. Could I offer a few suggestions on how we could possibly streamline it? No one got back to me from the city. But when you start using the services, it actually helps because then you start figuring out, oh, okay, like we empathize with our customers. And right. then eventually you get to the technology and you can talk about cloud and you can talk about True. data lakes and all that other stuff. But unless you can really formulate how are the end users, how are your customers using it how then you could build the business case then you can get to the technology and one of the things one last thought that actually ties into this i loved it so much jr sloan who's the cio for the state of arizona he's been on several times maybe four or five times and there's a phrase people process technology and, and in an interview he said that's why the people come first <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I love that he said it that way. I, he didn't yep. laugh, but I'm like, JR, come on. You got to laugh at that. I'm like, that's so funny because to me, it's so obvious that it's the people first. Anyways, I love that quote. I love that you have that humility though, right? So that humility to say, I don't have the best idea. I need that. I need that assistance. I need that help. I need those ideas. That's what, that's what's really driving that. Yeah. We talk about a lot of time when I say we, me and my wife, some people think we have this large team because we ship so much content. It's just me and Jamie. And we have, we, we move quickly with something that we think, but we don't hold the idea too closely and we're willing to pivot and change. And there's mm -hmm. a great leadership podcast by Greg Crochel. And he talks about this on his podcast, one of the episodes that's really great. 
And what I love about it is like, hey, we're moving quickly, but I'm open. I could be wrong. I might need to make an adjustment. Mm -hmm. I realize that I don't know everything and I'm open, but I also understand I still need to take action and I need to get the ball moving in order to receive feedback. And in that part of that's just holding, and you just nailed it, is holding, part of just holding your ego in check of, hey, like I'm not the man, I'm building this. And, and I love that about Jocko, submitting your ego for the sake of the team really resonates. And we talk about on the basketball team all the time too, of getting the kids to submit their egos to the greater team dynamic for the mission and what they're trying to accomplish for this particular season. Yeah. I, I love that you brought that up, Glenn. Yeah. It's just so important because how can you be that servant leader if you're putting yourself first? You've got to put the team first. You've got to put, it's like, I just put something on LinkedIn about trust and Harvard Business Review did a Harvard Business has done some great work on trust and it's very well understood. And one of the, one of the three legs that they, that, that trust is built on is empathy. If I'm making decisions with your best interest in heart, you're going to trust me. And then how do you do leadership without trust? So it's almost a requirement. Yeah. Yeah. You need the relationship there. You need the trust there. And people are, even high school kids and adults, everyone makes mistakes. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I love the most is in the story is if someone drops the ball or says something wrong, can you forgive the person? Can you come back and reconcile? I've had some high schoolers. I had one time I had a high schooler spit on another one and try and hit them. I had to break up a fight. Some of you are like, wait, what? That happens in high school? Yeah, it does. And when you're scrimmaging and the game mm -hmm. is close and both and the kids are competitive and they want to win, the best part is having them come back a few days later. Obviously, there's a cool-off period. We got to break kids up. But when they come together and ask for forgiveness and say they're sorry, I can't even get adults to do that. I was like shocked. I'm like, what? This is magic. What? This is yeah. amazing. Uh, I love it. So, Glenn, we're running out of time. I could sit. I'm bummed I can't take your class. So I think at some point what you should do as part of your book is offer like a bonus course where you record some of this content so you can look it up. You'd have a customer. Where can people catch you? Where's the best place to find you? If people want to reach out, how do they do that? Yeah, the best, I try to be really active on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm putting content out there about every week, every other week. A lot of it's like quick hits on 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 thoughts and, and how to build the right culture or different sections of it. And that's, I try to be real active on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place. Okay. LinkedIn's the best spot. Love that. I'm on LinkedIn a lot too. I actually just posted some of my photos from the senior night. Someone just commented right before I hopped on. They said, Joe, you look really short. And I actually have gotten that after, because I throw some live podcast events. And people see me sitting virtually in the chair. Joe, you're way taller than I thought. And I'm like, well, maybe it's the camera. I'm 6'2". Most people I meet are actually shorter than me, which is pretty funny. But when you put me up against some seniors who are 6'7", six, 6'6", six, six, yes, I know, audience, I am short compared to the kids. So anyways, Glenn, this was absolutely fantastic. I'm going off to the last basketball practice of the season. And we will link to your LinkedIn in the show notes. And if Glenn gets a, a newsletter up or some site, by the time we release this episode, we're going to link to that in the show notes also. 
So thank you for hopping on the public sector show, Glenn. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from TechTables.com, and you're listening to the Public Sector Show by TechTables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders. Through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events, we offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify and Apple podcast and hit that follow button and leave a quick rating just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves and to continue this darn good conversation head over to the q a section on spotify